Hello. Hi. Welcome to issue 21 of Scout and Birdie. Thin Ice. I'm Jennifer Keel. And I'm Anna Wolf. This issue, Jen and I have been thinking about obviously the time of year it is, and it's getting cold, and it's November, and so thin ice is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, though, I grew up here in the Midwest, um, and so thin ice is actually like something that I'm familiar with and that mm-hmm. makes me think of winter. But Jen was just saying that she grew up in California and there just wasn't ice. Yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area. So we just had rainy winters and it was just kind of dreary. But there's still this feeling of coldness that you get in your bones and it's makes you kind of a little bit creaky and makes you just a little bit more careful. Just but you fragile. didn't grow up with like the constant worry of like falling on your butt when you're walking to school or... No. <laughs> well, also, thin ice is legit an issue when you grow up in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. And also in California, you drive most places. We're a very car-based society. So we kind of drive around in our little our little pods and we don't really interact with people in the same way that you do here in Chicago. So there's just a different feeling. There's less of a camaraderie about traveling and like taking the train together. And there's this thing of traffic is like what you would get angry (laughs) together about, but you don't experience it together in the same way. So it's a strange thing. Well, California girl, um, let me tell you my icy walking to school story uh, so you can uh, understand where I'm coming from with my feelings on thin ice. Um, When I was in high school, I was walking to school one time and there was a very big hill and um, I realized before the hill um, that my crush was like walking behind me. And I walked up the hill and was fine and reached a patch of the hill that was still quite steep that was so icy and I couldn't get my footing and I couldn't move because I knew if I took another step, I was going to fall because it was so icy. And I was just like slowly, slowly inching down through the ice and there was nothing I could do. And so I literally had to turn around and sit on my butt and scoot down (laughs) the hill of ice because I couldn't walk on it. I was slipping so much. And then my crush went right past me and walked right up it. <laughs> I have like a real problem. I always slip on ice. I I mean, it's dangerous. Now living here for five years, I'm fully aware that winter is a nightmare. <laughs> and in thinking about the theme of thin ice, yes, we were thinking of winter and mm-hmm. my tragic, embarrassing thin ice moments. But I think also on our mind was a feeling that a lot of us share, whether you're from California or, you know, the Midwest where, or places where there's, there's snow, um, is that currently what's going on in our country and the political climate, there's this feeling of being like, like on thin ice, mm-hmm. of feeling like at any minute now we could just crack through and that we won't be able to hold anymore. There's so much happening um, and that everything is, uh, is really like fragile right now. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think there's a sense of needing to watch our footing, needing to be careful with our words and 
when we choose to speak, to be very intentional about what we're saying, to really treat our words with care and with the value they deserve. Thin ice is such a vivid image, even though I didn't grow up around snow or anything like that. Thin ice is an image that I can relate to. The idea of needing to move with care and intention. And I think that's that's important. Yeah. And uh, needing to know when to take care of yourself and when to scoot your butt down to the ice and slide down the hill instead yeah. of trying to be a hero and walk all the way up by yourself yeah. or push yourself too far. Totally. And in this issue, the artist took thin ice in such a beautiful way. We have a few pieces that are these lovely fragments of vignettes. And there's really this sense of the fragility of love in this issue. <laughs> a lot of really touching stories. And we are so excited to share it with all of you at home. It's a issue where the artists took the theme in a direction that we hadn't thought of. And it's always exciting and beautiful to see that happen. Yeah. So please enjoy issue 21, Thin Ice. All right, first up in the issue, we have Terrence Carey. And you'll remember Terrence from his last appearance on Scout and Birdie in our Passing Notes issue. Terrence is such a a talented and captivating writer, um, and we are so thrilled to have him back with his piece, Thin Ice in Three Parts. Part one, we Jesus walked Lake Mendota. We could only do it in the wintertime, but we pulled off that miracle every day after school and before Bootstrap. Bootstrap was an after school program where kids from the South Side got paid to do their homework. I only remember collecting two paychecks, but it wasn't all about the money. It was about the people, the crew, Andrew and Enrique. Andrew was a year or two older than us. He was the one who got us to take our first steps on that winter lake. The first time was so seductively scary. We saw Andrew confidently walk out there like it was second nature. Enrique tapped into that second nature first. Right behind him, I grabbed the edge of the bridge. Then I tapped the ice with one foot, with my other foot firmly on the soft snow on solid ground. Soon I split from the ground, out on ice, holding on to the bridge, following Enrique and Andrew as they went out further and further. They went fast and reckless as I confidently trailed slowly. Slowly one foot down as I had to let go of the bridge, slowly as we moved towards the trees, slowly as I held the tree branches above me, slowly as we passed the trees, slowly as we moved out to the middle of the lake, slowly I breathed with my hands and self still. Back at bootstrap, high off near death, we are damn, 
and stupid and crazy as hell from the names the kids are calling us for walking on ice, then February is here. And I didn't walk on Lake Mendota today. I come to bootstrap straight from school. I walk through the hall to hear the sound of harsh and fast sounding Andrew is blow drying his soaking wet self. Damn! I fell in. Where? Near the bridge. It happened so fast. Part two. Mom snaps the pencil in front of my siblings and me. Family meetings are interesting, sometimes. Most times, their mom screaming and dad sleeping tiresome. Sometimes a little Vinny stuttering, Rally Rail picking his nose, trying to touch me and Cece and Licia, eyes rolling, hilarious. But today it's interesting. We're all watching mom as she snaps a pencil. And then another, and another, back to back, silence is thick. And the splintering wood cutting through like chewing ice cubes. A pencil by itself will break. She snaps another, easily. But seven pencils, she says collecting a handful of pencils, looking at each one of us. Can't break. Now let's work together, do a strong power hour, and clean this house. Part 3. Her name meant queen, in Swahili, in the way she walked and tilted her head in a new weave, in the way that she would angle her camera, leaving one to have to look up to her eyes and lips and song and her Instagram stories, in the way that she sings along to 102.7 with her hand under my chin, I was in her palm, scared that I'd lose myself, or that living for someone else would mean that I couldn't live for myself, or for the fact that when it came to my feelings, my analysis was full of I don't knows. I knew I loved her, Really loved her like out of breath laughing as she talks to me as the thug like fuck morning breath give me a kiss I need those lips like if I got it we got it like I will listen to your whole day and everything you hated about it like holding her close on sticky steamy summer nights loved her but still I don't know with her I feel like I'm drowning confused on what the future holds Confused on what the present means, floating on her grace, her empathy, her humor, her intelligence. We felt quick. After month four, we were consistently talking about our future, like naming our children's middle names kind of future. We had a Lake Mendota deep kind of love, but it felt man-made. Like I was the man mating a family, thinking more about my children and queen entering or envisioning darker future where I'm sinking while swimming, where I'm forgetting, sinking, where I don't know myself well and being misunderstood while trying to understand swimming. As we fall into the lake, I fear losing my goal, my goal to save my family. I fear the goal of starting a family before I'm able to make my parents retire. Nothing happens overnight. It's the slow fall into adjusting. Slowly not being ready, but going. Slowly helping my parents, but never seeing them in their mansion. Slowly into being parents saying help. Slowly into not spending enough time at home. Slowly working and working and not wanting to come home. Slowly realizing that Zodiac app was right. Slowly into what if. Slowly into getting a divorce. Slowly 
going back to being broke slowly back to back when we were eating cold lunch at school and drinking spoiled milk at home slowly back to coupon clipping poverty hitting rock bottom yelling bubbles out of my mouth it all happened so fast Next up, we have Al Rosenberg. And Al is one of my closest friends. We met each other. um, We both started becoming active uh, with the same Jewish community here in Chicago, um, Mishkan. And we've stayed really close together. Uh, We've hosted a lot of Shabbat dinners um, and have a group called Queer Shabbat um, (laughs) that meets uh, often to make Shabbat dinners. She's an amazing writer and such a supportive friend. And I'm so glad to have her on for her first time with Scout and Birdie. Yeah, so please enjoy Al's piece, I Loved a Girl That Everyone Loved. I loved a girl who everyone loved. There was nothing radical about it. Anne was the captain of our varsity soccer team, even though we were only sophomores. So everyone called her by her last name, Marcus. She never tried too hard in class, but didn't shame those of us determined to be loved by our teachers. She never joined me when I snuck off at lunch to smoke pot out by the portables with the punk kids. She always went to the parties I wasn't invited to and never got mad when drunken MySpace photos showed up the next day. She loved her best friends and always knew the new kid's name. And she was just mean enough that when she was nice, it felt like you'd earned it. We weren't friends. I was a social pariah after my idiotic choices earlier in the year led to the kind of dramatic series of friend breakups usually only seen in teen dramas. My name and phone number with the words slut, liar, and pig were sharpied on the insides of bathroom stalls. And after months of secret weeping and occasional public humiliation, I'd given up on the idea of repairing my reputation. I'd switched all of my classes and hardened my heart as much as a delicate flower of a teenage girl can, but continued to fail to grasp the basics of good friend etiquette. So we weren't friends, but we were friend-adjacent. That was my new comfort zone. Never truly close to people, but willing to play along good-naturedly when the moment called for it. I sat directly behind her in economics, a class both of us regretted signing up for, and we'd spend the hour making jokes about our teacher's over-eager attempts to be relevant and liked. Eventually, my class notebook became our shared space for these small cruelties, But that shifted into other gossip, and inane confessions, and collaborative multi-page doodles. We gave each other nicknames that we only used in the privacy of those pages. Halfway through the semester, she wrote on the top of a new page, Come to Nick's house after the game today? I agreed, knowing I'd have to call in sick to work, lie to my family about where I was, and that I'd hate being there. Anne had asked me, 
there wasn't another answer. The party was loud as people mixed fruit punch with cheap vodka and grinded against each other on the dance floor, which was usually where Nick's parents watched Fox News after family dinner. I knew everyone's names, even in the dim light, but no one waved me over. I pushed through to the back porch where Anne sat in her post-game victory glory. An inch of briefs showed between her loose gray sweats and navy hoodie. She'd let her Adidas slides fall off and was rubbing one socked foot up Franny's leg. Franny was still in her cheerleader uniform, and I wondered if there'd been a football game tonight, too, or if this was a weird role play I'd walked into. Anne looked up at me, eyes glazed over with the fruit punch special, and smiled weakly. You actually came. I laughed without knowing why and looked nervously at Franny, who was staring angrily at my too short dress. Hi, Francis. She let out an angry laugh and pushed past me into the house. Anne watched her go and then asked, What'd you do to Franny? I just shrugged and took a white wicker seat nearby, trying to pull my skirt farther down on my legs. Uh, how long have you been here? Instead, she leaned forward and took my hand, looking seriously into my face for a beat, before bursting into laughter. I'm too drunk already, right? I did absolutely nothing for fear that she'd let my hand go. Nick thinks you're a dyke. Said you wrote his sister a poem or something at some Jew thing. She took a sip of a drink I could smell from my seat, but kept her grip on my fingers. My face was hot as I remembered Sarah reading my terrible poetry aloud to the rest of the Sunday school class on lunch one day. It had hurt more when she came out the next year and started dating a hot bi girl from another youth group. But you're not one of us, right? Suddenly, I was aware of the intensity of her look and of how many people were on the other end of the porch, smoking out of a dingy glass pipe. I swallowed a few times, my mouth dry and tacky. Yeah, I'm bi. I thought everyone knew that, at least everyone who changed in the girls' locker room and could read marker graffiti. She laughed again, even louder tugged my hand into her lap, and I let her, folding my body forward. No, I would know. You're always dating a new guy. You're not gay. And I don't even think bi is a real thing. Years later, I'd remember this moment, when I started calling myself a lesbian, and I'd cringe, believing I was aiding in bi erasure, but desperate to be seen. In that moment, I just shook my head and wished she'd just kiss me and get it over with. Fran's voice arrived before she did, yelling from the other side of the screen door. Look! This fucking slut! It's not enough that you've slept with half of the football team? I was off the porch and halfway down the street to the bus before I felt the pressure of Anne's fingers leave my own. Late that night, when my house was finally silent, my mother asleep in the twin bed next to mine, I crept to AIM. Of course she was online. Of course I sent her a spineless, sorry. Anne, why'd you run off? Me. Fran hates me. Anne, she just thinks you're trying to steal me. But you're not gay. And we're breaking up anyway. 
I felt an indecent thrill and rested my forehead on the desk to calm myself before typing back. Me. Bye. And why are you breaking up? There was such a pause, I thought she'd left, but finally... I like our friendship the way it is, you know. I like sitting in the back of economics with you. The untyped, so don't fuck it up by being gay, didn't stop me from pushing. Yeah, same. But it doesn't have to just be in the stupid portable. No response. She wrote at the end of class the next day, beneath a particularly gross doodle we'd been giggling about all period. My buddy Matt likes you, so stop with all the gay bullshit. Let him take you out. So I did. In Creative Writing Club, where I always stayed too late and called the middle-aged advisor by his first name, Martin, when we were alone, I turned in my piece for the week. It was a story about a lesbian sleeping with her true love's brother after being rejected. He hunched over it, a hand tangled in his graying, thinning curls, his glasses balancing perfectly on the very tip of his nostrils, reading over my work. He had this habit of pushing each page of writing away from himself, as if in disgust, no matter what he was reading. It made for ratty copies of Shakespeare in third period English and near crumpled copies of my writing in our club. I sat like I always did in these precious late hours before I had to catch the bus home. As a teenager, I had no bad fidgety habits. I was never tempted to chew my cuticles, bite my nails, tap my fingers or feet. I would instead spend uncomfortably long periods of time sitting almost entirely still. My boyfriends often told me how eerie it felt, how I looked like a doll. They'd asked if I were breathing or blinking. Years later, I'd develop a nervous habit of biting my lower lip that I worked to rid myself of after a classmate told me he thought about it at night. And even later, thanks to long-term high-dose steroids, I developed an unattractive facial tic that causes me to rub my upper lip along the bottom ridge of my nose. But at 15, I was the stillness of a deer moments before collision. Martin took in my words with unrivaled intensity positively encouraged me to keep writing, and usually only offered one or two suggested changes. Sometimes he asked if he could take my work home for his wife to read, and I'd feel my face flush as I agreed. This time I sat, my mostly bare ass cold on the press board desk, my skirt too short and too flared, no matter how many times I tried to stretch it longer my eyes staring unfocused as he shoved one page after another away from his view, thinking about Anne. I barely registered that he was speaking to me until I heard, the main character is just so unlikable. I'm the main character, Martin. He nodded for a while, looking down at the last page of my story, before meeting my gaze and saying, well... Maybe that's something to consider. The next time she flipped through our notebook, I watched her grow as still as I ever was, and I knew she'd found my love letter. I'd stayed up late, carefully detailing all the ways she made me feel, and then watched as she tore it from the notebook. For one small moment, I thought she'd fold it up and put it in her pocket. 
Instead, she systematically ripped it into tiny, unreadable pieces. The teacher stopped his joking with one of the football players and turned to ask, What's going on with you girls? Anne shoved the snowfall of my affection off her desk. I need to switch seats. She's too distracting. Gutted, horrified, but bereft of shame after months of social isolation, I hissed, But I love you. Speaking at a volume the whole room could hear, she replied, Everyone loves me. Years later, during winter break of my third year of undergrad, I made the mistake of visiting my old home. I let my childhood best friend talk me into attending a Christmas party one of the cool kids from high school was throwing, assuming there'd be dozens of people, most of whom I wouldn't know, townies who'd never left, but were from other schools or other grades, just like the majority of people from my town. But there were just 15 of us, and Anne was already there when we arrived. I felt moisture slick along the inside of my clenched fists, and I shoved them deeper into my pockets. I was wearing black-fitted jeans tucked into Doc Martens and an obnoxious Hanukkah sweater. My buzz cut recently touched up and my hipster frames much too large for my face. The men were in boat shoes, khakis, and buttoned-ups. All of the women were in short, glittery dresses and heels, their hair barrel-curled and sprayed, their faces dewy. Except Anne, who was wearing her high school soccer hoodie over black slacks and Adidas. I fought to make eye contact with anyone else, prayed a single other person would ask me why I was there or where I'd gone to school or why the fuck I always seemed to dress wrong. Instead, I found the bar, which only offered Tecate or Mike's Hard, and I took my time with slowly twisting the top off of a bottle. When I turned around, she was just behind me, laughing at something a beautiful girl I'd known since elementary school was saying. I could hear nothing over the roar of anxiety. She made eye contact with me as I felt a bit of the cherry liquor drip down my face. She reached out and wiped my face with the back of her hand. Why are you staring at me? Don't be such a freak. She laughed and gently punched my shoulder before reaching past me to grab a beer. She was already drunk. I laughed and moved immediately away to silently join a conversation about our high school class president's already very successful retirement fund. I nodded when other people piped in and laughed when other people laughed and couldn't stop thinking about calling my brother to come pick me up and save me from this hell. It was an hour later when I felt her hand wrap around my upper arm and her voice too close and too loud in my ear. What are you doing with your life anyway? I turned from listening to an engagement story I'd already heard twice that evening, and we robotically filled each other in on our recent histories. Every sentence felt like a challenge. Both of us were losing. After a particularly painful stretch of silence, she grabbed my hand and said, I have to pee. Come with me. Years of being out had made me very careful about these moments. I never went with my straight friends to the bathroom, and if I went with another queer, it was usually to push them up against the sink and slide my hand under their shirt. 
My pulse picked up, and I let her pull me into the small half-bath. She drunkenly swayed to the toilet and started to pull her pants down when she seemed to remember that I wasn't one of her real friends. She met my gaze and told me to turn around. It was there, as I faced the corner, as I listened to her impressive stream of urine, that she asked me between uncontrollable laughter, "'Remember when you thought you were gay and told me you loved me?' The sweat trailing down my lower back turned to icicles. I swiveled my body, looking straight into her eyes, and spoke the last words I'd ever say to her. No, I don't. All right, next up in the issue, we have our good friend, Maura McDaniel. And Maura is an incredible writer and a wonderfully talented metalsmith as well. You'll remember her from our Passing Notes issue. In this issue, we'll be sharing four of Maura's poems from her book, Only Interested in Everything. Her book is available on Amazon, so if you love these poems, which we're sure you will, go on to Amazon and get the whole book. Yeah, so here's Maura with her four poems. I'm not here to look pretty or grow a baby in my belly. I'm here to be a curious human or whatever else I please. I wanted God to approve of me for heaven. I wanted my father to protect me for security. I wanted my brother to be proud of me for confidence. I wanted my man to support me for self-belief. By the time I got it, I had already given it to myself for love. I could see myself living a hundred different lifetimes, which can make the present dizzying, full of half-doubts. A cowgirl patrolling the ranch, finding simple joys in brushing horses in the morning, daily smells of campfire and hay soaked in long hair, or a poet going in and out of their inner world, always noticing and making friends with city birds on walks. Find a home in Istanbul, drinking dark tea and eating lots of mint, I would imagine, absorbing the centuries of history among the slanted alleyways. But I choose to be here, in this city, at this time, with you, carrying a dull daydream of what the future holds. There's a certain magic in that. My inner being loves you, but me, not so much. Everyone's doing the best they can, but you could have tried harder. Next up in the issue is Reverend Rebecca Anderson. Reverend Rebecca is my favorite reverend, and I'm sure she'll be yours as well. Um, she is a powerful performer and such an inspirational speaker, and I'm mm-hmm. so glad to have her on again. 
Yeah, you'll remember Rebecca from our Truth or Dare issue earlier this year, and we are so thrilled to be sharing her work again. So please enjoy Rebecca's piece, Venezuela. Laura and I stare at each other. We're at the funeral of Laura's partner. It was a horrible funeral, a tragic funeral. And we hold each other's gaze. A friend has just asked, how do you two know each other? Venezuela, the middle of the country, the middle of the night. Laura and I were back to back on a thin mattress listening to a pack of dogs barking in the distance. Downstairs in the bar, there was yelling. Bottles clinking, glass breaking, motorcycles growled in and out. The village was marked by poverty, unlike anything I'd seen to that point, but we were staying at Los Viqueños Hotel, or possibly brothel. It was a little hard to tell, actually. There were some signs at the front desk that were really very unclear. But we had this dubious and relative luxury because we were seminary students. We'd been sent to this place by our church. We were supposed to build relationships with the Union of Evangelical Pentecostals of Venezuela. The wide open mouth of the air conditioning vent roared into the room, and we knew that air conditioning was like ridiculous luxury, but it was awful. We were freezing. We had nothing but shorts and t-shirts. And I wondered if having known Laura only a week, it was too soon to huddle closer to her for warmth. I had just finished my first year at the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, and it had been astonishing. I mean, I was raised in the church, but I found out so much at grad school that cracked open my childhood faith. I found out that faith bears interrogation, that the Bible can be a tool for liberation, not oppression, that following a God who came to live among the poor and outcast means heading more deeply into this actual here and now world. I found out other stuff too. I found out that I could belong and move among brilliant people. I found out that I could break up with my boyfriend, drop 20 pounds, turn heads on the street. I could take up with a libertine short story writer who when he turned his sights on me made me feel sparkly and urbane. This was a new chapter, a new me. So when I was invited to participate in this trip to Venezuela for seminary students, paid for and organized by my denomination, I rode the wave. Following a peasant god, I was going to take the new me to Venezuela and discover what I could see and learn there. I first laid eyes on Laura in the parking lot of an airport hotel in Miami on our way to Venezuela. The smell of hot tar rising around us, she ambled toward me smiling as she came. I knew that I had a roommate somewhere among the gathering strangers, and I thought, I hope that's her. I didn't need to know a thing about her to recognize her. She is my people, and she was my roommate. She got close enough to say, God, is it going to be this hot the whole time? This is going to be terrible. She laughed, and I began to pray a new prayer. Thank you for sending me this woman. In that first day, in between stories about the children's theater she'd directed and the women's bookstore she'd owned, she spoke often of her housemate from home. She quoted her all the time, and she laughed as she described this hilarious, brilliant friend. And listen, I know that in a lot of ways the church sucks. I knew that she didn't know if she was in hostile territory. I tried to figure out a non-patronizing way to let her know, I get it. You have a wife. I'm on board. Laura and I and 10 other seminarians followed Jesus all over eastern and central Venezuela in the back of a 15-person passenger van. We bounced over rutted dirt roads and over a new mountain highway that was still known for nighttime piracy. We passed streetlights made of open containers of gasoline burning, 
set on top of other barrels. We lunched at a truck stop with horse on the menu. And wherever we went, we lobbed questions at Carlos, our leader, a seminary professor from the U.S. Do Protestant churches here mostly support Hugo Chavez? And how prevalent is dengue fever? And what's a land grab? And who are those guys with machetes gathered outside our gate? And to all of our questions, Carlos responded, you don't understand Latin America. We got a copy of the expenses for the trip, and we passed it hand to hand. $1,000 a day for the van that belonged to the brother of the self-proclaimed bishop who was our Venezuelan host? Carlos, why is the van so expensive? We were naive, but we knew this seemed off. We stopped asking Carlos questions and started asking each other. Why was our money taken to give to the wealthy van owner and his clergy brother? Money that we'd collected to tip our cook, Luis an emaciated man who was trying to visit his dying father in a distant state. Why didn't Carlos stay with us at night? What was the nature of Carlos's relationships here? I mean, we felt safe with him. God, you guys, I don't know, Laura said. He's sort of like the godfather, right? And what were we supposed to be doing here? Why couldn't we get our questions answered? During the first week of the trip, we were driven to a women's health clinic a mayor's office, a radio station, an artist collective, everywhere our photos were taken and we were introduced as the U.S. delegation. But we couldn't make sense of what we saw or experienced and Carlos was zero help. We sat for hours long lectures. We went to an indigenous YU community to watch costume children dance the dance they danced for all their visiting church friends. We all got the shits. We all drank bottle after bottle of polar ice beer like it was water, which basically is. We all lost our ability to accept hospitality. We were too sick to eat skinny chickens slaughtered on our behalf, too overwhelmed to notice that the thin towels were so new that they still had their price tags, too disoriented to realize that the shirtless man sleeping on a flat of cardboard was wearing a hat reading security. He'd been hired to protect us. Late in the trip at a concert at a shiny new school in the middle of desert nowhere, we were serenaded by ear-splitting Christian rock music while military helicopters thumped overhead. There was no way to know how long it would last or if it was an event planned for us or what it was. Finally, unable to hold back, I started crying behind my oversized sunglasses until I had to excuse myself to the bathroom, which is where Laura found me, squatting down like a toddler having a fit. I was hungry and exhausted and confused and embarrassed. I thought you might be here, she said. In that moment, I crouched in the bathroom crying. And this is why I don't tell this story that much. It's hard to get at what was so awful. If you look at the pictures, I look like I'm having fun. We swam in a pool while we were there. And we were really safe the whole time. And what's even so bad about Christian rock played too loud in the middle of nowhere? Like, it's bad, but it's not crying in the bathroom bad. I went to bear witness to the lives of others, but I was unable to. My reconstructed faith was absolutely not enough to see me through rats in the bathroom or corrupt leadership or too many ham sandwiches or rich white seminarians judging impoverished Venezuelans for breastfeeding in church. I mean, I had thought the trip would be chaotic. I thought we'd see injustice, but it was the imbalance of power in our little microcosm in the van that undid me. And I tried to keep track of who I'd become in divinity school, that new me. But if this trip was some kind of test of what I thought I'd learned that first year, I failed. I failed. God's gaze was not enough to anchor me. The truth was, I kind of lost myself on that trip. Like the new me, the old me, gone. 
quickly and easily like a parent at a fair. I let go of my own hand for just a moment and I vanished. Almost. Laura came after me. 3 a.m. that night, back at Los Viqueños Hotel and or brothel, Laura and I were back-to-back, freezing in the night, listening to the dogs bark and the noise from the bar, scared a brawl might break out downstairs and make its way past our ad hoc security guard. Needlessly, I asked, Are you awake? Yes. I'm so cold. We got up and layered. T-shirts, extra socks. We threw a yellow rain jacket over the bed for insulation. And to that, we added a couple of the thin bath towels. From across the room, Laura looked at me and saw me in the bed, homely and undignified. And she stood kind of dejected in this half-light, her feet wedged into socks and sandals, her whole self drooping under a poncho that she was wearing for warmth. We took each other in. Our unloveliness, our failure, our ugly Americanness. We saw it all. This is really bad, she said. I want to go home. A year and a half later, I'm at the funeral, waiting for Laura to arrive. I catch my reflection in a window. I think, I look like a pastor. Got a Bible tucked under my arm. I feel like a pastor. I turn and see Laura appear at the end of a hallway, flanked by a group of women. As I move toward her, our eyes lock, and there's that question, how do you two know each other? As we hold each other's gaze, it's all there. Stories of 10 days. It was just 10 days. But we don't know what to say. We don't know where to start. All right, last up in the issue is the wonderful, talented Hal Baum. Hal Baum is on my top 10 artists for Spotify this year. Uh, My phone just told me. Um, He is a multi-talented artist, and we're so glad to have him on this time with his writing. Yes. So please enjoy Hal's piece, Three Lovesick Stories. Number one, my wrist hurts every now and then. My wrist hurts every now and then because one time I was riding my bike home from work and I was excited to get home and Skype my girlfriend at the time, so I was riding as fast as I could down a hill in the rain and my brakes weren't all that great to begin with. I hit a curb at the bottom of the hill and flew forward off of my bike and face first into a concrete pylon. My face healed in a week, that was fine, but my arm was in a cast for three months and it never really healed properly. It was a problem mostly because Olive was coming to visit me and was supposed to be our last time together because long-distance relationships suck. So she was coming to Chicago and we would have a good time and then that would be it. But now I was going to have this stupid cast on the whole time that she was here. And, as if that wasn't bad enough, a week before she got here I got this weird lump on my hip that turned out to be a sebaceous cyst. I went to a doctor and he sliced it open with a scalpel and pulled out what looked like a piece of chicken fat the size of a pea. 
So when Olive arrived, not only did I have a cast on, but I also had an open wound on the side of my body that I had to re-bandage every morning because it was draining pus. This made it hard to have shower sex, but other than that, we soldiered on and kept trying to have a good time. But then, the second day that Olive was here, I got a phone call from my doctor who told me that my cyst was infected with MRSA, which is a fairly common but incredibly contagious form of staph infection. So Olive and I spent the next few days going to various hospitals and health clinics to make sure she wasn't going to be infected with MRSA too. We had to cancel all the things we had planned to do. We didn't do mushrooms in the park. We didn't go to the zoo. We didn't get deep dish pizza. The lowest point was when we tried to make pop rock chocolate. It was something that we had had in Israel. We had spent all day in clinics getting poked at by doctors. We were sick and tired, and this was the last thing that I had planned that we could actually do. We just wanted to do one fun thing. We went to four different stores, 7-Eleven, CVS, Jewel, Walgreens, and none of them had fucking pop rocks. I fell to my knees and started crying in the candy aisle in Walgreens. But we soldiered on. We got gummy worms instead, and we made chocolate-covered gummy worms. The next day, I got a virus, and we spent the last night in the emergency room of a hospital on the south side, and I could barely stay conscious because my fever was so high. The next morning, she left, and I never saw her again. Just kidding. We both agreed that trip was awful, and so it didn't count. So a month later, and the day after I got my cast off, I flew to California to see her, and that was a wonderful time. We went to the beach, hung out in San Francisco, touched each other in the backseat of her friend's car. It was wonderful. We were in love, we were together, and no one was infected or diseased. We got to do everything we wanted to do that week. No crying in the candy aisle at Walgreens. And then I had to leave. She drove me to the airport, and I kissed her goodbye, and I never saw her again. And sometimes I forget that I have a bad wrist, and I'll do a cartwheel or something and hurt myself again, but then a week will go by and it will be better, and another week will go by and I'll forget again, and then I'll be breakdancing or something and I'll hurt myself, and then I'll forget again and hurt myself again, and forget and hurt myself and forget and remember and forget and remember. And it's been over a year now, but it still hurts sometimes. Number two, eggs. Late in his shift, Gene was daydreaming, and before he could stop it, his heart popped out of his chest and landed in one of the egg cartons that was coasting down the line. He realized what had happened just in time to watch it slip out of sight. He chased after it, only to reach the end of the line and find pallet after pallet stacked with thousands and thousands of cardboard cartons. He stared up at the tower in horror, imagining his tiny red heart beating somewhere in that pile of identical white eggs. What are you doing? The floor manager asked. Nothing, Gene said, and he went back to work. That night, he didn't feel much at all, except nervous and a little deflated. The next day, he felt distant. The day after that, he felt cold. And the day after that, he fell madly in love with a woman he had never met. He had no idea who she was. He didn't know where she lived or what she looked like. He didn't have her name or her phone number or her address. He just had a feeling, a horrible feeling of missing her, whoever she was. At work, he could barely contain himself. And at night, he had cloudy dreams of small, lonely apartments, fluffy pink pajama bottoms, and intimate moments in cramped bathrooms. One night, when he was lying awake and staring at the ceiling, wishing that he was somewhere else and nowhere at the same time, it got so bad that he climbed out of bed, pulled on his jacket, and got into his pickup truck. He drove through the night, following the feeling, hoping it would lead him to her like an invisible thread, but it was too vague to follow, and it only led him in circles. At the end of the night, he parked at the top of a hill and sat, defeated but peaceful, on the hood of his truck, and he watched the sun rise, casting a pale new light over the city, and he thought to himself, 
She is out there somewhere. And if she feels a fraction of what I feel, then no matter how long it takes, I know we will find each other. Liz swiped her alarm off and went to fix herself breakfast. She pulled the fresh carton of eggs out of her fridge, and in the far right corner slot, instead of a smooth white egg, there was a little wet lump of something. It was red and slimy and pulsed with desperation. Liz gasped when she saw it. Fuck, that's gross! And she tossed the entire carton in the trash. Number three, the space beneath her bed. Together, we pushed her bed aside, and underneath, instead of a layer of dust, there was a rectangular pane of glass embedded into the floor, and below the pane of glass, there was an endless black expanse dotted with stars. It was like the floor under her bed was the glass bottom of a glass bottom boat, only instead of the ocean, it was the night sky. We were both stunned for a moment. Has this always been here? No, I don't. I've never seen this before. I've never seen anything like this. It was the first time I had seen her looking so soft since we were together. Usually when I saw her now, she had a pinched expression on her face, tired and annoyed, like I was wasting her time and she had to get back to something actually important. It was an expression that made me miss her, even though she was right in front of me. But now she looked unsure and amazed. She looked like a little girl in her fuzzy red turtleneck. It made me want to cry. I just wanted to turn to me and tell me that she loved me again, and I half expected her to do it, but she didn't. She didn't move at all. She did not blink. She seemed mesmerized, staring downward into space, the space behind the pane of glass. I could see the twinkling reflection of the stars in the glaze of her eyes. Jane? She didn't say anything. Her eyes were wide and her mouth was open. Her cheeks were flushed like she was cold. Snowflakes and stars look awfully similar. I wondered what she had seen that I hadn't. What is so mesmerizing down there? Why can't I see it too? But these thoughts disappeared when all of a sudden I realized what was about to happen. I leaned forward to stop her. Wait, but it was too late. She stepped forward onto the pane of glass and slipped through, disappearing into the darkness below. I started immediately to follow her, but my heart stopped me. I looked down to try and see her, and there was only a red dot quickly shrinking into the darkness. My heart kept pounding. Behind me was the door to her bedroom, slightly ajar. In front of me was the void on the floor, the red dot almost gone. I closed my eyes, and I took a step, and my foot landed. I opened my eyes, and I was standing on the pane of glass. I tapped it twice with my foot, but it was as solid as anything. There was no slipping through it. I got down on my hands and knees and peered through. The glass was cold, like a window on a winter day, and behind it there was not a trace of her, just an endless sea of stars. end of our issue thank you so much for listening if you would like to stay connected to scout and birdie in between issues go on to facebook instagram twitter and be sure to like us and follow us be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check out all of the wonderful artists pieces online you can also find out where to keep up with each of them there If you are an artist and would like to submit to be in a future issue of Scout and Birdie, go on to scoutandbirdie.com and click on the submission tab and send us your stuff. I'm Jennifer Keel. And I'm Anna Wolf. And we'll see you next time with issue 22. A thousand words. Bye. Bye.